spend more than 60 years in the public eye, and you can understand how. She ends up here. Take physic, Expose yourself to fear. What wretches fear. The dumb is shaped the superflux to them. And show the heavens more just. From the Folger Shakespeare Library, this is Shakespeare Unlimited. I'm Michael Whitmore, the Folger's director. That, of course, was the great Glenda Jackson. I can't begin to list all of the accolades and accomplishments in the life of Glenda Jackson. If you need it all spelled out, go to her Wikipedia page. It's long. In short, though, two Academy Awards for Best Actress, two Primetime Emmy Awards for her performance of Queen Elizabeth I on PBS in the 1970s. There's also a Tony Award in there for Best Actress in a Play. All that despite giving up acting entirely in 1992 to serve 23 years in the British House of Commons. She's back in full force now, performing on Broadway in a production of King Lear. We had the great good fortune to get Glenda Jackson into the studio in New York to talk about playing a king after playing a queen, opportunities for women in the arts, and the intricacies of this new King Lear production. We call this podcast, What Have You Performed? Glenda Jackson is interviewed by Barbara Bogave. You've played monarchs before. Uh, Queen Elizabeth I, for instance, uh, for Elizabeth R. But this was your first king. So my question was, do do the two roles inform each other at all? Or do you approach each, each monarch and each role with specificity, you know, that they're apples and oranges and not just because of gender? Well, another actor who I know and who had played several kings was asked, how do you play a king? And he said... You don't have to. Everybody does it for you because they all stand up when you come into the room and they bow. And there's an element of truth in that, of course. The basic difference here is that Elizabeth was a real ruler. Leah is a created character. But the basics of his world is very unlike, actually, Elizabeth's first world. No one has ever in his life said no to him. During her life, until she actually acceded to the throne, her life was in serious question. Almost, well, not from the day she was born, but certainly when her mother was executed, that she would go the same way. That was not something that was ever present in Leah's life. The reason I started with this is because I wanted to talk about the physicality of of acting and and embodying a, a role. And... It's interesting watching you as Lear. I very much feel that you're a man and a king, but I don't feel as if you're a woman trying to appear as a man. No, we have divided in three our kingdom, and it is our first intent to shake all cares and busyness from our age, conferring them on younger strengths, while we, unburdened, When I was a member of parliament, one of the duties and responsibilities that one had was to visit old people's homes, day centres, things of that nature. 
one of the things I found most interesting was that as we get older, we, the human race, those barriers or rather boundaries which define our gender begin to get foggy. They drift out of, you know, a rigid lining. And oddly enough, someone, you know, people are very kind. They wait outside the theatre for autographs and things. And one of the members of the audience said to me, I've seen this play many times. It's the first time I've seen an aspect of the maternal in Lear. Now, I'm not deliberately playing maternal, but it, I do think about that, you know, gender absolute being cracky. Yeah, it all seems to bleed into each other. Uh, and it's interesting when you add this element of authority and power an absolute authority and power that then crumbles. Uh, Harriet Walter, an actress I'm sure you know uh, well, was on the podcast recently, and she was talking about her experience playing Brutus. She said, when you're acting on stage, you're playing these powerful men on stage in Shakespeare. The power infuses you. It infuses your body. And she felt she naturally started taking up more physical space. Just she felt larger, therefore she looked larger, as opposed to trying to express that in some other way. And you experience, she said, the male privilege. Oh, very much so, yes. But there is an extraordinary energy in Shakespeare's plays. And if you tap into that, that I think does, it. well, it obviously it gives you that energy as well. And that is the most transformative thing, of course, of the words. <laughs> um, but yes, it's certainly there. It's always a push-pull, though, with this gender bending uh, and, and being beyond gender. Be- I, I noticed if you a- observe it, forgive me for interrupting you, mm-hmm. but it isn't when you're actually playing because, I mean, one of the basic rules, well, certainly one of my basic rules, is you observe the world through the character's eyes. You're not judgmental about their opinions or, you know, likes and dislikes and things like that. And when you have that perspective, you know, it, it's, it's there. It's positive. You don't have to think of it as an external coat you've got to put on. I agree. But then society always comes back in and, and places that those boxes on you. And I was thinking of a critic who said, uh, saw your production in London, mm-hmm. and he called you the manliest leer he'd ever experienced, which just... I read that and it just enraged me. I mean, I I, I, I was so angered by that that he would he, – he said he, he interpreted – that he would interpret your unapologetic self-assurance as manly. <laughs> as if women are not unapologetic Listen, or can't I be mean, self-assured. Listen, you know and I know, although there have been major advances made in the opportunities – proffered to our gender, doors have opened. We are by no means equal. It is still the basic rule that if a woman is successful, she is the exception that proves the rule. If a woman fails, well, it's because they're all just failures. And although I am passionate in my belief that Shakespeare is the most contemporary dramatist in the world, if we look at those dramatists who are writing now, they still find women basically boring. In new plays, new drama, new whatever, whatever, 
the central dramatic engine is always, always a man, it seems to me. Exactly. And you've experienced this whole decades of gender stereotyping Absolutely. in the theater. And I Absolutely. read I read uh, that right before you went into politics, a journalist asked you, why are you giving all this up? And, and you said, well, there's no continuum for actresses. There's no sense of actually seeing if you can really do it when you reach the higher altitudes of theater in the way that there is for men. And you specifically said that critics would never accept a woman playing Lear. I'm I sure I'm not, I don't mean would. to throw your words back at you, but, <laughs> but okay. here we are 27 years later. Can you talk about what, what has changed, either in the theater or in the world over those 27 years, that you are in this position? Well, I, I don't know that they're necessarily linked in that way. I mean, the reason this all came about in truth is that a great friend of mine, a brilliant Spanish actress, Nuria Esper. She played Lear in Barcelona. And I went yeah. to see her and she was marvelous and it was a wonderful production. And she said to me, why don't you do it? And I said, <laughs> to quote back to you, they would never let me play Lear in England. And this so, isn't that long ago. Or is it? Two, three, four. Well, I did it in England two years ago, didn't I? So it must have been just a few three years. Or four years before. And anyway, the old Vic um, asked me to do something there. And after a lot of, not bargy bargy, it was all very friendly, um, <laughs> Leah was put on the stage there, and that's how it came about. So why did you think they still wouldn't do it? London wouldn't put on a... Oh, because uh, that had been my experience all my life. And in a sense, you look at the experience of actresses now and it has not dramatically changed. I mean, I was doing another interview and um, the interviewer said that women in, I think, 59, 60 range, we were talking about actresses, mostly actually in television and film. And she said, you know, they have... What, the cosmetic surgery, and I said to her, where's your evidence for that? A, because there are no parts for women over 59 and 60. I mean, in my I know, day... what a waste. <laughs> I mean, in my day, right. I'm going back now to films, of course, um, you know, you were finished when you were over 18. <laughs> I mean, so those kinds of shifts haven't really produced the goods yet. I'm not saying that there aren't. There are marvellous actresses who work in film and television, but the really interesting stuff tends still to be almost exclusively the independent producers, you know. It's well, we talked to Felita Lloyd, uh, the director well, of... Oh, there you go. Yeah, the original, the gender bending. Absolutely. And did the all-female yeah. Julius Caesar, and she talked about her initial motivation to... to to do all-female Shakespeare back in 2012. And right. she said she read this report uh, published in London saying that for every job that was going for a woman in the theater, there were two jobs for men. Of course. So the balance of employment was And it's was not just one. the issue of the number of potential jobs. It's the, the quality of, of the jobs. Yeah. And as I say, we're still not the driving engine and everything new. Well, we have talked, uh, I've talked recently to a number of male actors uh, your age who have mm -hmm. either, or, or younger, uh, who have either played Lear or itching to do it. And of course, it's considered one of those two roles that an English-speaking actor has to do, or male actor, and the other being Hamlet. And oh, well, yeah, both ends of the age scale. Exactly. Yeah. Hmm. It made me wonder, did you ever itch to do Hamlet? No, I didn't. I mean, I have friends, female friends who have done it. I was in Ophelia in a production with the RSC, 
and got terrible, terrible notices um, until the Sunday Observer came out. And I think it was Penelope Gilliatt and the headline was Ophelia, Prince of Denmark. And I thought, oh, I haven't gone mad then. (laughs) 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 What I'm doing, I know I'm doing. So you think they were reacting to your sense of agency in Ophelia because we she's so rarely played that way? I think it was that I didn't play her as a kind of woeful ingenue from the word go. And I mean, victim. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, let's hone in on this specific production. Okay. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> with Sam Gold mm-hmm. here on Broadway. And initially you you worked with Deborah Warner That's on right. the London production. Yes. And she had also directed Fiona Shaw as Richard II. Right. How has Sam Gold changed this production from London? I didn't see it in London. I have oh, my own ideas, but I wanted to different. Yes. Uh, totally different. I mean So how we, did he put his mark? We, on we it? well we played to a bare set in a bare set in the old Vic, apart from miles of black plastic when the storm scene and the hovel scenes came along. Um, there's something very different about this production. There are a number of actors with hearing and speech impairments yes. on stage. Yes. And uh, Regan's husband, the Duke of Cornwall, is a deaf man Indeed. who is perpetually, you know, he's interacting w- with other characters on stage mm-hmm. and with his interpreter. And that's, the interpreter is played by Deaf West director Michael Arden. Absolutely. Who, who has is a beautiful person to watch and he- listen to. Oh, yeah. Well, unfortunately, I never get to see any of it, you know. That's Somebody right. You're me, <laughs> how, how, is it, how is your performance different? They talk about me. And I said, I don't know. I haven't seen either of them. You know? <laughs> how do I know if it's different? And I don't get to see it. Yeah, Lear is off stage a lot, actually. Derek, we talked to Derek Jacobi, too. Oh, yes. And, and, hmm. and he pointed that out to me. He said, I don't know why everyone talks about it being so exhausting. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> is that, you feel that also? Absolutely. Partly because... Despite his saying, Leah saying that he's 84 score and upward, it's not an old man's part. Yes, I call you so vile, ministers, that I, with two pernicious daughters, enjoyed your high engendered battles against the head as old and white as this. Ah! This guy absolutely refuses to accept that he's old. And it's one of those terrible revelations for him at the end of the play, that he is old and he acknowledges that he's old. And so what I'm trying to say here is that the idea that this is a part essentially for someone who is old is not true. I mean, Shakespeare wrote this play for a guy who had a lot of energy and a lot of drive. I died bloody hand, now virgin. Now, since you're the man that led you, that art incestuous, those pent of guilt rave your concealing continents and cry these dreadful messengers grace. I am man, most indigent and sinning. Well, there's so much this play can be about, as everyone oh. has said, it encompasses everything. Well, he everything. is the most contemporary dramatist, isn't he? I mean, think of the tropes that are in this play, that are in our daily lives now. It's just astonishing. One thing a lot of people do have trouble understanding is Lear's madness. And many actors I've talked to talk about the question of Lear's madness. Uh, I talked to Anthony Shear on the podcast when his book Year of the Mad King came out, and he's a researcher. So he said 
He talked to neurologists mm -hmm. and gerontologists. Uh, and he came up uh, or they gave him a theory that Lear is suffering from temporary madness due to illness brought on by exposure, like a pneumonia. That That's based in fact. That happens. And and this helps. I don't helped. think he's in the storm long enough to get pneumonia. I think there are, I mean, he speaks earlier in the play about his rising heart. So obviously there's something there. And of course, the emotional stress that he goes through, which is... I don't quite know how to describe it, really. But, uh, I mean, it's he says, I'm as full of grief as age. It's not really grief in that sense. It's, uh, for me, it's almost stupefaction. That it's almost unbelievable um, that they would do this to him. And that obviously reverberates physically as well as, as mentally. Goodbye, the pelting of this pitiless storm. With your houseless heads, your unfed sides, your looped and windowed raggedness defend thee from seasons such as this. Whoa! I have taken too little care of this. Um, and yes, I, I accept that it's a temporary madness. It's, it's a, the whole play it covers only, I think, two and a half weeks. I mean, you know, mm -hmm. it's not exactly a long piece of time in these people's lives, but the changes are catastrophic. And yes, I can see it that way. It's it started out with some kind of physical weakness, which is not exclusively about age, which is exacerbated by the treatment that he perceives he's received based on fantasies that he's lived with all his life. Shear also said that it's the study of, of aging and of a man falling apart. Oh, well, and that's And that you very actually yes. feel yes. the fragility, your mortality, playing it. Do I? I'm never quite sure about that. Um, but certainly, as I said to you earlier, the, the realization that as we do and as we are in all Western democracies, we're experiencing this, we are facing the realities of living far beyond what has been the accepted rule for age. And it works both ways. I mean, I've seen, you know, elderly women who suddenly become extremely, I'm in charge, that kind of thing. And you see men who are suddenly quite tearful, emotional, express emotions, whereas you know, a little earlier, that would have been absolutely out of their context. It, what I'm trying to say here is that even though, in, in my view of him, no one has ever said no to him, he discovers their dishonesty for himself when he's mad, in quotation marks. But he only really knows what love is by having experienced it when it's much, much too late. I mean, they're both dead. And that's, you know, intriguing. Well, it's interesting uh, for a non-actor to mm. think about the technique. For instance, um, at the end of the play, there are those nevers. Mm. They're which, the ones. Yes. I mean, and you do them oh. beautifully. Yeah, I just thought no, yours were so you. naturally expressive and varied, and each carried a different emotional because, meaning yeah, and Because weight. that's what he's, he's, he's suddenly, you know just suddenly hits him, even though there's been this quite long scene he's berated the other guys for not mourning in the way that he, if he was young, would and things like that. 
and it suddenly hits him. And I think that must be what it's like. I mean, the deaths that I've known in my life have been within my immediate family, you know, parents, grandparents, aunts, uncles and things. And in every instance, it was because it was a combination of age and illness, probably. So they were not shocks in that sense. But Cordelia's death is a terrible shock to him. And that realization that you're never going to see them again happens to him instantly. But, you know, a lot's gone before that. But it suddenly, I think, hits him. And how you say that, I, well, with Anthony, I struggle with that. Well, I don't struggle. I try to get it right every night. But, yeah, it's really, really tough because it's so true. So you true. S- it seems that you travel a bit in the in the f- oh you do in the line yeah, I mean yeah. the, the so and, how do you work on it well you don't I mean up to a point I mean there's nowhere you're going that's one good thing <laughs> except down um, but it is that you know how I mean the idea of never you know I mean never I mean just put it in the context of you know this little ball that we all live on rolling in this endless, infinite space where there is never an end. I mean, it's just, I can't get my head around that one. I want to switch gears okay, and go way back. Okay. Um, you come up in a biography of Peter Brook. Oh, right. You know, uh, widely considered the most influential Shakespeare director. The greatest. The greatest, yeah. yeah. And, and in the book, uh, you talked about being one of the first 12 actors to take part in what was known as the Theater of Cruelty. That's right. Uh, remind us, what was that, and, and where did the name come from? Um, well, the Theatre of Cruelty comes from the work of Antony Nato. Peter wanted to do a play, um, and he felt that British theatre, certainly English theatre at that time, was too literary, not literary, too word-dependent. He wanted to be able to use the whole person, in a sense, and the whole of what is theatre in a way that it wasn't so compartmentalized as it was at that time. And so there were 12 of us. We started off in a variety of rehearsal rooms and, in a sense, created what became known as the Theatre of Cruelty. It was like kind of slightly upmarket review in a way. My question was, has anything resonated for you now, more, decades that, later, from oh that Theatre of Cruelty oh education? Oh, my God, yes. Absolutely. And can you can you I mean, tell me I why? had been very fortunate. I'd been employed by no means permanently or even regularly. But the bulk of the work that one did in rep, repertory theatres, which was where I was employed, where what had been the West End successes, depending on the size and success of the rep, you might do a West End play that had been a big success a year before. If you were a smaller, you might get one that had been a big success three years before. But in the main, they were all white, middle-class, middle-aged plays with the odd, you know, character parts and things of that nature. Then, of course, John Osborne wrote Lubbock back in anger. And that whole theatrical era went and a new one came in. But to work with Brooke was just such a staggering experience. First of all... He expects you to be what you say you are. And therefore, 
you don't go through that tedious process where, you know, the director thinks, oh, you've got to be cajoled or you're idiot children and you have to be, do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Just so patronizing and horrible. Nothing like that with Peter. His favorite word was no, still is. And another actor in the company with me at the time, Robert, said the marvelous thing about Peter is he stops you going down the wrong road. And he does. But his other amazing, amazing thing is he doesn't know if there's a production there. And so the whole of the rehearsal process, I mean, there's a play he wants to do, there's an idea that he wants to put something on stage. You all, you all are expected to work as one. You know, the total has to be greater than the sum of the parts. And you find it together if it's there to be found. Well, I love that you said you spent a lot of time sitting around in a circle on the floor beating out the stresses in a line of Shakespeare. Absolutely. <laughs> Which doesn't sound that unusual today, was it? Was it unusual back in 1960? I think, well, the beats in the bar for Shakespeare were not unusual in the 60s, but that approach to work most certainly was. I mean, there was a prevailing fashion, certainly among the older generation of actors, to treat acting as being the least important of things. You know what I mean? Oh, I'm... Is it really my cue? Because I'm reading this very interesting article in the Times. Okay, Mm. I'll be on. And there was a game at the RSC, Stratford, when I was there. Um, And the game was, who could stay in the green room long enough and still make their cue on the stage? Hello. (laughs) Hello. What are we talking about here? Um, And it was just transformative. And the areas of work that became... So available, no, not work, that's wrong. The Well, yes, if you think about the acting as being the work, which I am thinking of at the moment, you, you began to explore parts of the capacity of more than just, you know, saying the words and not moving into the furniture. And that cohesion of being able to grow off each other, I'm making it sound like fungus, but I mean grow in the best sense of the word, was just great, absolutely great. So meaningful. That, that, and that leads me to something I wanted to ask you, because we haven't talked at all about your time in politics. Oh, this, right. this being a Shakespeare podcast, we try and <laughs> stick to the Shakespeare. But uh, it did make me curious whether if spending 23 years in politics changed how you think about the relevance or the necessity of theater or art. Do you know the real relevance here? Oddly enough, and it's become more marked because it's one of the things when times are hard and money is short that gets slashed, is engaging children with art. If they have that, and I remember from my childhood and certainly from my son's early years in school, that that was a very present force. I mean, children were taken to see plays, they were taught music in school, all that kind of thing. They're Other learnings improved because of that. Because now we see where those kinds of things have been drastically reduced in many instances, taken away from state schools. There has been a deterioration. It is so important, so important. And when you get a really good night in a theatre... A group of strangers are sitting in the auditorium in the dark. Another group of strangers come on in the light. And then energy goes from the light to the dark. And hopefully that energy is increased and sent back to you from the dark. 
And you can create a perfect circle. And that is <laughs> an ideal for a perfect society, isn't it? So that's my theory, one of my theories. One of my, not my theories, one of my beliefs as to the importance of, of theatre. One more question about politics. Uh, right now in the U.S., there is a group of women, progressive Democrats, and they've just come to work in the House of Representatives. And to a large extent, they ran for office for the first time, and they're coming in with a motivation, I imagine, very similar to the one that, that you had under M Margaret Thatcher. Mm -hmm. uh, so I'm wondering whether you have any advice. One thing that I learned from my years of being a member of parliament is that the shoe is not on your foot. The shoe is on the foot of your constituent. And that for me was a genuinely humbling and extraordinary privileged position to be in. In my country, we hold what we call advice surgeries. And a stranger could come in, didn't know the person, they didn't know me. And they, because the MP is the port of last resort, if your life is in some kind of difficulty, they would lay their lives out on the table in front of me. And I could get someone to speak to me on the telephone. I didn't always get the results that we wanted. But without exception, the individual would say to me, thank you. And that, you know, even as I'm saying it to you now, you know, the hairs are going up on the back of my neck because some of the stories I heard were terrible. So all I would say to those bright young ladies, remember, however passionate, you have to convince other people. It's not a didactic approach, I think, that works. It's a understanding. For some people, it's very, very difficult to equate what they're hearing with their own experience, and you have to be aware of that. Well, I want you to have some energy for your performance uh, tonight, and I just want to thank you so much for this and for the, for the performance. Oh, no, thank you. I'll always remember it. Thank you. Glenda Jackson is an Oscar, Emmy, and Tony Award winner who also served 23 years in the British House of Commons. At the time this podcast was recorded, she was playing King Lear on Broadway. Glenda Jackson was interviewed by Barbara Bogave. Our podcast, What Have You Performed?, was produced by Richard Paul. Garland Scott is the associate producer. It was edited by Gail Kern Pastor. Ben Lauer is the web producer. We had technical help from Robert Ald, Helena DeGroot, Deb Stathopoulos, and Larry Josephson at the Radio Foundation Studios in New York. If you're a fan of Shakespeare Unlimited, please leave us a review on whatever platform you get this podcast from. That's a really important way to get out the word about the work we're doing here, especially to people who don't know about the podcast already. Shakespeare Unlimited comes to you from the Folger Shakespeare Library. Home to the world's largest Shakespeare collection, the Folger is dedicated to advancing knowledge and the arts. You can find more about the Folger at our website, folger.edu. And if you find yourself visiting Washington, D.C., we hope you'll visit us on Capitol Hill. See a performance in our Elizabethan theater and come face to face with one of our first folios, the first printed edition of Shakespeare's plays. We hope to see you here. Thanks for listening. For the Folger Shakespeare Library, I'm Folger Director Michael Whitmore.